And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Buffalo Beat. My name is Joe Pascalia. Thanks, everyone, for joining me on this post-game edition of the podcast. The Bills getting back on track a little bit here, beating the Browns 31-23. The Bills are now 7-3 on the season after winning against the Browns in Detroit. And uh, quite the week it was, or at least quite the 48 hours it was for the Buffalo Bills. So, So we'll get into... Everything that the game kind of entailed, what it means, some trends that maybe we can track moving forward, a lot to get into here. But I wanted to start with uh, saying thanks to everyone that that reached out on Twitter. I know I didn't have the preview episode out for you. Uh, I was right in the center of that uh, 77-inch uh, snowstorm uh, and just got absolutely pounded on Friday. Uh, we lost power for a little bit. Uh, that's why I wasn't able to get you the the preview episode and the preview podcast. So my apologies for that. But uh, everything's good here. I was I was out shoveling snow off the roof and uh, and you know trying to dig out on Saturday. Um, shout out to my uh, my neighbor Anthony for helping uh, dig me out uh, dig out my driveway on on Saturday. But yeah, it was. Uh, a wild, wild thing, something I have never experienced, uh, not to that degree, uh, especially, you know, not uh, not when I have to be the one to, you know, dig everything out. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, definitely a wild couple of days, but, uh, but yeah, I'm sure it was wild for a lot of people, not just me. So I just wanted to say thanks for being patient and, and everything like that. My apologies for not getting you the pre- uh, the pregame episode, but uh, everything's back on schedule as we kind of move forward here. But all right, enough about that because the snowstorm was obviously a huge thing. Six and a half feet of snow in Orchard Park, which is <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but the whole the whole uh, s- uh, situation surrounding the Bills this week about how everything was just a little bit topsy turvy from the moment that they declared on Thursday that the game would be heading over to Detroit and trying to figure out a window, you know, A, would they be able to practice on that Friday? B, would they uh, uh, would they be able to find a window to actually get out to Detroit on Saturday? And then the other aspect of it is, could the players all get to a spot where they could get picked up and everything like that? Because the snow was no joke. Most of the players live around... The South Towns, whether it be Orchard Park, Hamburg, um, some in East Aurora, that that area. Some live downtown, but most, for the most part, they're usually located in the South Towns there because that's where uh, the facilities are. But just so many lo- logistical things that they needed to go through that, you know, maybe the game was 
a little bit on the back burner. It, it was and it wasn't because they knew it was a pivotal game heading into this game. Having lost their last two games and and moving forward, uh, trying to get themselves to a spot because the AFC East is proving to be a, you know, a pretty tough out for just about everybody. You know, everybody is over 500. The Patriots just beat the Jets today. The Dolphins are seven and three. Now the Bills are seven and three. The Patriots and Jets are both six and four. Like this is, this division looks to be no joke at the moment. So the Bills knew that they had to get back on track. And that's where the game aspect comes in because, you know, I'm sure by now you've heard a lot of the stories about how, you know, people around town have helped dig players out to get them to the game. So that's all well and good. You've heard that there. But what we saw at the beginning of a game was not really rust, but there was just a lack of sharpness uh, with the offense specifically. The defense... Yeah, they, they allowed that, that first drive touchdown, and it's like, oh, what's going on here? And you, you didn't really know because they, they had Jordan Poyer back. Matt Milano was still out there, even though they didn't have Tremaine Edmonds, even though they didn't have um, Greg Rousseau and Tredavious White still not being out there, Kair Elam not being available to the game. But, you know, he's less important than the Rousseau, Tredavious White, Tremaine Edmonds tier. But even though, even still, they had Milano and and Poyer out there, and so that's why that first drive was kind of surprising. They certainly righted the ship after that, but uh, the offense was the more concerning aspect because through their first three drives, it was apparent that something was just amiss. And I know it led to a lot of, I don't know, anxiety maybe? I think that might be the right right way to put it with how it looked in the first quarter because, I mean, to a certain degree, Bill's fans have grown accustomed to this offense just picking up right from the jump of the game and not really expecting there to be any like bumps in the road. Like, Hey, oh yeah, first down. It's 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 like a guaranteed. Like first down after first down drive that that goes in long a long standing drive. And so when the Bills have a start like they did, where they did not get a first down until the second quarter, they went three and out through their first three drives, it raised some eyebrows, certainly. Uh anxiety level uh, about why the offense was kind of sputtering. And this is also a bit of a combination of the last couple of weeks where the offense just didn't seem totally what they usually are. And so that first quarter, there, there was a lot of skepticism about what was happening. Josh Allen, the accuracy was horrible. Uh, through his first 10 throws, he went 4 of 10 for 27 yards. And they just never really got into a flow through those first three drives. But on the fourth drive, even though it looked like they were about to go 3 and out again, when they hit, or when Allen hit that 28-yarder to Gabe Davis, that zone beater to the left sideline, the whole thing flipped from that point forward. He, he went from 
being four for 10 for 27 yards through those first 10 throws to completing 14 of his next 17 passes for 170 yards. So something clicked in and it wasn't even on that drive in particular because the Bills still only scored a field goal on on that drive that Allen first threw the the big throw to Gabe Davis. I, I think it wasn't until that just absolute fireball he lasered into uh, Stefan Diggs where it was like okay everything is kind of back to normal now with with what they're what they're going on and I know some people might might be a little bit concerned about the elbow injury in relation to why maybe some of these passes weren't as accurate but it, you know I think it might have just been a slow start honestly and I know the elbow is a concern everything along those lines but we didn't really see too many, uh, warning signs in the previous game when he was first dealing with playing through the injury and then really those those first 10 throws that we're talking about against the Browns here you can kind of put those in a vacuum with just maybe it was just off maybe it was just misfires and and these types of things happen from from one game to the next so it's not ever going to be a perfect situation week in week out like there are going to be struggles and everything like that but I get some of the trepidation involved with it but you know the important thing is here the offense kind of rounded into form and one of the big reasons that they rounded into form was because for the first time this year they actually had a sustainable ground game you know Devin Singletary had 86 yards James Cook also had 86 yards and they didn't have to rely on Josh Allen really at all to get the rushing offense going. Like, usually, in most games this season, Josh Allen had been the guy at the top or near the top of the Bills' rushing leaderboard, and most of that yardage would, would be coming on scrambles. Because they're not really calling as many designed runs for Allen anymore because they, they know what he is and what he's capable of, and... That they want to limit his hits as much as possible. I think that's that was a, a big to do over the last couple of years, and they've kind of like phased that out as it's as it, the year has grown. And certainly, this injury is is a big piece to that. But it was a huge thing for this offense to get that ground game going. And this is something we have chatted about for weeks on end now because McDermott has made allusions to it through his press conferences about not being too one-dimensional. The last two games, when the Bills have been up in the second half, the Bills, for some reason, went away from, from running the ball. I think it was seven times in the second half against the Jets, four times in the second half against the Vikings where they actually uh, ran the ball with a running back. It's just not to say that, and I know I throw this caveat out there all the time, but not to say that they have to become a run first team and run the ball 60% of the time, but, you know, something more than the 19% of second half plays that they had done the past two weeks. Like, there's just, it's not really the way to build a sustainable offense when the opposing team knows that eight times out of 10, four times out of five, you're going to be dropping back to pass. Like, 
you might burn them every once in a while um, with, with, a, with a run, but for the most part, they know that you're dropping back to pass, and that limits what you can do. So getting that ground game going with Singletary and Cook in differing styles, I think, was really important. But there is there is one little piece to it that I feel like I should mention before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of maybe some things that they were doing here. The Browns have a really bad run defense. And I'm not taking anything away from the Bills. I think what this should signal, above all else, is that they took advantage of an opportunity against a defense that was struggling to stop the run to get themselves going. It's what they do from here that will ultimately dictate if this is something that is sustainable throughout the rest of the season, as it was at the end of last season. But... The Browns, their defensive tackles, like their run blocking stats are just horrible. They're if you watch them on film, they're constantly being pushed out of the way. You could see it on Devin Singletary's uh touchdown right up the middle, the five yarder. He they basically just move the defensive tackles right out of the way, parting of the season, and he had a pretty easy stroll into the end zone on that one. That's just very commonplace when you watch Browns film. And to the point in which if they didn't have some success rushing against this team, there would have been a lot of questions about what they could ultimately be. But they took care of business. They were able to take advantage of this this Browns run defense that has significantly struggled this year. So with that out of the way, how did they do it? What did it look like? Um, Getting both Singletary and Cook going, I think, was really interesting. You know, not not just in the sense that getting the two running back approach going, but they just did it so differently. And it provided the Bills with this sort of unpredictable flair with either guy out there. What, what I mean, because you know, you know that um, it's going to be a tough out to bring Singletary down because he's more of the tackle breaking, tackle breaking in comparison to Cook, mind you, not in comparison to other players around the league. Singletary is more of the tackle breaking, you know, push forward through contact guy than than what James Cook is, and he's able to be elusive in the open field. Um, by setting up defenders with his footwork and then and getting a couple extra yards by by maybe making a uh, a move that the defender didn't think that Singletary would. And in comparison to that, Cook was this game breaking or flashed this game breaking type of ability where, you know, while Singletary gave the consistency of, you know, keep on adding each single every single run to the point in which getting the almost 5 yards a carry like that was that was a good day for him but cook just went about it differently on seven fewer carries he had four huge plays well, three huge plays another one that went for 9 yards those four big plays that I'm talking about totaled 71 of his 86 yards and that's the type of speed and game-breaking element that Singletary just doesn't provide. And so if Cook can continue to keep keep that going, then that is an asset to this team 
that future opponents are not going to be able to just play the Bills the same way as they always do if Cook is lined up in the backfield. So how what what are some of the ways that that the Bills had this success? Because you can look at it and go, okay, Cook had 86 yards, Singletary had 86 yards. What was the difference here? Well, besides the blocking of of the interior guys, which I thought was uh, was better, um, obviously, based on their results, but it was also Ken Dorsey flipping his tendency a little bit in terms of personnel and formation stuff. I think they knew that they had an opportunity against this Browns team to be able to to run the ball because we saw pretty pretty close to the start of the game the Bills were using a lot more of uh heavier formations and that's you know, normally we see them in 11 personnel a lot where you see uh, 11 personnel three wide receivers a running back and a tight end that's that's their default formation it's what it's what um, it's what you'll see them in most commonly but against the Browns they went with they took one of the receivers off the field and went with an extra tight end or fullback, or a six offensive lineman, I believe on 45% of their snaps, if I have my um, my have my figures right. Uh, I have it in my uh, seven observations article that I finished um, that I'll be posting, I think at some point uh, Monday morning, whether it's early, early in the morning, or sometime uh, like around 7, 8 a.m., that'll be up at theathletic.com. Um, but they were in these heavier formations, 45% of, of their snaps. And what I found most interesting is that's that was their most productive means in the gaining of yards throughout the game. Because on those, I think it was 28 out of 62 snaps that we're talking about here. No, 28 out of 61, excuse me. The Bills averaged about 6.7 yards per play with the heavier formations. And if you take out the the give-up play that, that Allen had at the end of their final drive, which he admitted to taking the sack and, and the negative five yards to keep the clock running... If he throws that away, that ups their average to 6.9 yards per play on those heavier formations. Like I said, with a, taking one of their three receivers off the field and replacing it with either a, a second tight end, a fullback, or a six offensive lineman. And sometimes they, they went tight end, tight end, fullback. Sometimes they went tight end, tight end, uh, six offensive lineman. Like there were a lot of different iterations of it, but this is not something that Dorsey has done to a great amount this year. And and it kind of is reminiscent of how Brian Dable operated from every once and again with his offense. When he saw an opportunity against, against an opponent that was having some trouble stopping the run, that's when he would kind of bust this out for a game. It wasn't something that lingered 
we saw bits and pieces of it after the one like flash game where they they just do it a ton. Like maybe they they do it a little bit more in in the in the game thereafter, but it wasn't something that became their identity as they move forward. But as we know, Dorsey is a different guy and I will be interested to see if this is something that maybe they tried to mimic for future games because of how how much it helps springboard their their rushing game and how much they believe that the rushing game can help influence their their passing game and and being able to become this unpredictable offense because you know after those first three drives where the Bills went three and out, you know, that was as unpredictable of an offensive play calling slash, not even play calling, but just how they were operating. Like it was just, it, it just felt more unpredictable. And that predictability has been one of my biggest criticisms of Ken Dorsey so far in which you can, kind of always know what he's going to go to um, based on what he had done in the previous games. So I thought this was a, a really nice job by Dorsey in bouncing back, especially after a bad start. I don't even know that that was necessarily his fault. I think Allen was just off um, at the beginning stages of that game, and then, and then it certainly kind of uh, snowballed on them right in that first quarter. But they eventually got back to it. And once that ground game got going, the passing game was going. I mean, Josh Allen, over his final 17 throws, in which he completed 14 of them, mind you, was averaging 10 yards per attempt. (laughs) So something clicked at that that point. I think that's something that McDermott is going to really hammer... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hammer on throughout uh, this shortened week leading up to the Lions game. It's just, it's reminiscent slightly. And you don't want to go too overboard because this is still a Browns team that is three and seven. They have now lost six of their last seven games. Yes, they're using their backup quarterback. And yes, they were supposed to have a good defense this season, but they just haven't had that. So not going overboard. But it's definitely a good sign moving into the future as to whether or not uh, they can they can utilize this ground game. Maybe not as heavy an approach as, as we saw, but more effectively in future games now that they've got this momentum going. So that's a that's a positive sign for them. The Cook aspect to it, I think, is especially intriguing because he was able to do that damage in, let's see, how many snaps? On my unofficial snap counts, uh, I had Singletary with 72% of the snaps, James Cook with only 24.6% of the snaps, and then Naheem Hines with 15.4% of the snaps. And again, that's that's unofficial. Um, but... With Cook still being right around that 15-snap roll, I do wonder if there is an opportunity to maybe bump him up just a little bit, get into that 20-25-snap to 25 snap roll, maybe bump Singletary down a little bit, and 
to like 40-ish, right around like a 60% to 65, 60% to 35%, I think would be a good blend of these two guys. Because what Cook flashed out there was this dynamic skill set that Singletary just doesn't have. And Singletary is a, is, has really had a nice game the last couple of weeks, I thought. They went away from him last week, which they probably shouldn't have done in the second half. And I think we covered that. But he's done a nice job in consistently making the right reads and being where he needs to be. It's just He's just not going to bust one. And that's that's been the biggest, I guess, detriment to his game. Whereas Cook, now that he's starting to play with some confidence, you know, the, the ball security issues are have have dissipated quite a bit from where it was earlier in the year. And he just seems like he he glides and he's just very smooth running the ball. And there's going to be some plays where he just gets absolutely stopped because he doesn't have the power to force, force through tackles. And if uh, the defense sniffs it out, then it's not going to be pretty. But for every one of those plays, or every two or three of those plays, there's going to be one where he turns the corner or finds a crease and he's able to exploit that in a way that Singletary couldn't. And especially when Cook gets rolling down the field and and has some speed behind him, how he's able to make these subtle moves to avoid contact ever so slightly, or maybe he, he... makes minimal contact, but just keeps kind of going where he minimizes the hit down the field. It's a very intriguing skill set and one that I think they should continue to foster. Like I said, rookie players, they'll probably uh, stay away from that guy becoming the top back in the backfield. Just because that's that's not what they believe. They want to be able to minimize that role and, and be able to keep that that rookie fresh as they get forward into the, the end of the regular season, into the postseason. But I think if you ramp him up just a little bit from where he is right now, I think that, that would definitely add some more unpredictability to the offense. And what and one thing that they did with Cook on Quite a few of his snaps, nine of them, in fact. They paired him with Naheem Hines. So uh, I I counted 10 snaps in total for Naheem Hines. Only one of them, Hines was the only back on the field from from what I saw. You know, there there might be a a one or two other that snuck in there. Maybe I misidentified a player. I mean, just doing snaps on the fly is tough business (laughs) every once in a while. But on... Nine of the Naheem's, Naheem Hines snaps that I saw, nine of the ten, he was on the field at the same time as James Cook, which is an interesting formation in itself because what do you what do you do if you're a defense? Do you go into your base formation against against two running backs and then have a, a matchup disparity? Because the Bills are running two running back, two wide receiver, one tight end. If there's two running backs on the field, maybe it's more of an emphasis to be able to, uh, from the Bills' perspective, to run the ball. Because if you don't commit to three linebackers, then 
then it you know there there's lawyer people out there and and might be able to get away with uh, running the ball a bit more efficiently. So there's a there's a lot of little elements to where it kind of forces the opponent's hand, and if they do go in three linebacker, and the Bills split Naheem Hines out wide, that creates potential mismatch for receiving options. So a lot of different things you can play around with there. But it was uh, Hines with Cook. And although it whiffed on a couple of plays, like the one reverse to Hines, it was his only touch of the game on offense. It went for negative eight yards. Not great. But there were also a couple of big chunk plays where Cook rushed for 16 and then another one of his big runs where he rushed for 17 on a, on a third and one situation. So that that look that the Bills used sparingly against the Vikings and a lot more often against the Browns, I think that's one that we're going to continue to see until teams prove that they have figured it out and that they can stop it consistently. Because if you're getting these these chunk plays of 16, 17 yards once every two or three times you run it, and the Bills are going to keep going to that because that's why wouldn't you? So that formation of Hines, Cook, uh, Davis with Shakir were the two receivers most often out there with them. That's uh, that's certainly one that gives the Bills a little bit more of a dynamic approach. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So a lot of takeaways, from obviously, from the offensive side of things, especially after a slow start, but one that I think has a lot of potential as to how they move forward. And we'll see if they're able to capitalize and be this good rushing team because what they have been able to do so far has been uh, has not been good enough up until this game. And if Ken Dorsey and Sean McDermott can help foster this a little bit against some tougher run-defending opponents, then they could be onto something here. But they have they definitely have some tougher run-defending opponents on the horizon. Uh, really, not that far away. The Lions are what they are, but you know, you've got the Patriots, Jets, and Dolphins in the month of December. And that's, that's going to be a, a real tough time because those are three good run-defending teams. So we'll see if this this little slow ramp up against the Browns and the Lions can help them become the the unpredictable offense that Sean McDermott has been dreaming of. But the defense, I think, was offered up a a uh, statement of of their own, and I think what stood out to me the most in terms of how they were able to, or why they were able to limit what the Browns were able to do is because they had one significant piece in their intermediate defense, which was Matt Milano, linebacker Matt Milano, and one significant piece on the back end in safety Jordan Poyer, even though they had so many different inexperienced players all around them, like Tyrell Dotson was starting next to Matt Milano. And as we saw in the second half of the Vikings game, when Tremaine Edmonds went out, Tyrell Dotson really struggled in that one, both as both in pass coverage and as a run defender. We still saw some pass coverage struggles from Dotson, but still the run, the run defending piece was a lot better on the whole from the Bills. And... I'll get I'll get into that most significantly. But on the back end, you have Poyer, who returned after a two-game absence due to an elbow injury. And with him having DeMar Hamlin, Dane Jackson, Christian Benford around him in that secondary, it's a lot of pressure on him to be able to to sniff out plays and and be that guy to bat down a pass that may be the safety that was playing in place of him whether it's Cam Lewis, Jaquan Johnson, or even DeMar Hamlin when he's in those responsibilities, were just kind of a, a half or a quarter step late to the ball. We saw that on the second possession by the Browns where he broke up a David Njoku pass that if any of those younger safeties were starting in place of him, 
then that's probably a catch for the Browns and a first down. But he was able to thwart that and, and help force uh, help force the Browns off the field. So having those two pieces, even though they're still dealing with injuries, was so important to what they were doing. And if you go back and look, the Bills have only had all three of Tremaine Edmonds, Jordan Poyer, and Matt Milano for two full games since week three. So out of their last eight games, they have only had that trio for a full game twice. And they still didn't have them this game. I mean, they they had to go with Milano and Poyer, but so important because we saw what Milano was able to do, just absolutely flying around the field. I think it's a two-player race between Milano and Von Miller as to who has been the best defensive player for the Bills so far this season. And I think Milano might be winning that race after after what we saw against the Browns. He was just absolutely everywhere. You know, just super quick closing speed was great. Um, the tackling ability, obviously, sniffing out plays underneath. Like these are all signs of just Milano being at the top of his game. And when he's playing at that level, like there's there are not many other linebackers that you would rather have on your team than what Matt Milano is able to do within this defense. So having him out there was was huge for them. But the run defense in general with how they were able to thwart what the Browns did best, I think was the most... I guess, encouraging thing for how the Bills are going to operate moving forward because the Browns, one of the better offensive lines out there, not what they used to be, but still a really good unit. They lost their starting center, Ethan Pochich, pretty early in the game. Even without him, they still had a lot of their starting pieces available. And they just, uh, they weren't able to get the push that, they normally are accustomed to. And then when you combine their offensive line with Nick Chubb, who is one of the best, if not the best, pure rushing running back in the league, that's a tough duo to to limit, especially when you're down, you're starting middle linebacker, and you're down your best edge-containing run defender, in Greg Rousseau. So without those two pieces and still a bunch of other pieces on your defense banged up to be able to win at the line of scrimmage the way that the Bills did and to limit Nick Chubb as much as they did for only 19 yards on 14 carries, that's a magnificent job. And this is the the signs that we saw from the Vikings game of a potentially great run defense or maybe great is strong, but like a fixed run defense. They were great against the Browns, don't get me wrong. But a fixed run defense from what we had seen in previous games because we saw the Packers run all over them. We saw the Jets run all over them. But against the Vikings, it was different. They had that one huge play, Dalvin Cook, 81-yard touchdown run. 
We all remember that one. That happened. You can't take it away uh, from the Bills overall day. It, it has to be accounted for as a, a major mistake. But on every other, almost every other play than, than that, big flash chunk play, however you want to call it, explosive is what defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier calls it. The Bills did a great job for the most part against the Vikings rushing attack. I think it was something I think they were only allowing around three yards of carry outside of that big run. And again, that big run happened. And so the Bills are at fault for that. But we saw signs of them being able to kind of get things together here. And we saw that in a huge effort. Having Poyer back was was big for that. I think Milano was playing with his hair on fire. And then the defensive tackles were just winning up front. Jordan Phillips had a couple of nice plays. Ed Oliver, I thought, had a really strong game uh, getting interior pressure. Same thing with Daquan Jones. Like those, those guys were a huge piece to the puzzle. And Tyrell Dotson, I thought, did did a lot better in, in run defending. And certainly he has his misgivings as a as a coverage guy, but the run defending piece, I think, was a lot better. And DeMar Hamlin has shown to be a, a pretty solid run defender when he's getting downhill and helping out. So all of those all of those pieces really kind of popped for the Bills in, in the right way. And if they can limit a really good rushing team the way that they did, that's that's an encouraging sign moving forward. You know, just to play devil's advocate slightly, it's also a Browns team that hasn't had the most success passing the ball. So maybe they felt like they could take more liberties with bringing more players down into the box and taking away what the Browns do best and forcing Brissett to beat them a little bit more. I think that was a piece to the puzzle. Even still, they have stacked the box against a good ground game before and gotten burned by it. But that was not the case. They did a great job against Nick Chubb, just as they did against Derrick Henry uh, early in the season. And that's that's a commendable piece. And now we'll see where it goes. But it's hard not to think that with the pieces starting to get themselves back into the swing of things here, the injured pieces, I should say, whether that's Tremaine Edmonds coming back from his uh, groin injury or Greg Rousseau coming back from an ankle injury. You know, they lost A.J. Ebenesa today, who played a, a bunch of snaps when Rousseau wasn't available to them whenever he's able to get back into the lineup. Same thing with Tredavious White. It's all kind of setting up to when these pieces are starting to come back, the Bills could get back to that dominant level of defending that they were at earlier in the season. So these are all good signs for the future. The not-so-good stuff is what happened you know, with, with some of their, their cornerback play. A lot of that seems to be a bit up in the air. Um, Kair Elam was inactive for the game. 
Missed last game due to an ankle injury. He was questionable because of the same ankle injury heading into this one. Got a couple of full practices in. Well, you know, finger quotes, full practices. On Friday, he was a full participant, even though they met virtually. And then Thursday, he was a full participant. So maybe they just didn't feel comfortable with getting him back in the lineup with so little work. Regardless. He was out. Christian Benford was in, but they decided to do a split snap thing with him and Xavier Rhodes. And Rhodes has seen better days. Was a great player when he was in his peak, but have to see what he has left, especially in in this defense. And then Dane Jackson, I thought, really struggled in this game. So some things that... That position is the most up in the air. That they... It might just be trying to figure it out as they go. But uh, the other parts of the defense all seem to be fitting well. From the defensive line to linebacker, and even Hamlin playing next to Poyer. I think Hamlin has done a nice enough job to where that feels semi-secure. But the cornerback spot is the biggest, biggest question mark moving forward for how the Bills, for what could limit the Bills from becoming that dominant defense that we saw earlier in the season. But all in all, a a solid day from the run defense to make the Browns have to beat them in a way that they didn't want to. So the Bills, they, they certainly looked the part in getting themselves back up to speed here. Uh, wasn't perfect by any means, but certainly one that they can build off. A get-right game, I guess. It's a game that they should have won against a Browns team that was right for the picking. Like, five, losing five of their six coming into the game. Just seemed like their passing defense wasn't there. The, the run defense did, did not uh, fare all that well previously. And, and of course, they were rolling with their backup quarterback. So the Bills successfully did all that. All right, let's get into some awards because uh, it's it's about that time. We've got a short week coming up. They've got the Lions on Thanksgiving, the third Thanksgiving game in four years, especially after the Bills haven't played on Thanksgiving before, before that time, before, uh, let's see, what year was that, 2019? They hadn't played on Thanksgiving in decades. So we got a short week coming up, so let's let's get straight to the awards. Um, the first award is the Dree Archer Award for the player or thing that did not show up at all in the game. And I'm going to go ahead and give this to Isaiah McKenzie. And I bring up Isaiah McKenzie for a couple of reasons. One, because he did not have a catch in the game. He was targeted, but did not have a catch. They tried him on that uh, two-point conversion, which did not go well. And he didn't turn the corner or get upfield. Just, yeah, it. Uh, they weren't able to get that two-pointer. But McKenzie and his snaps, even though he had a remarkable um, 
edge on Khalil Shakir in the, in the two previous games. Let's see, combined between the Jets and Vikings games, Isaiah McKenzie outsnapped Khalil Shakir 93-24. to In this game, by my count, it was Isaiah McKenzie 26, Khalil Shakir 16. Now again, they weren't using as much 11 personnel, but Shakir was starting to crack into those snaps a little bit. So maybe it's just a a one-off. Maybe it's a sign of things to come, but we do know that McKenzie has not produced. He has not had a huge game for them since, what was it, the first month of the season? The Bills need more out of that third receiver spot, and I'll continue to point it out until they get it, which does not seem like it's happening right now. So Isaiah McKenzie gets the Dre Archer Award for the player that did not show up at all. And, of course, the kickoff return duties that used to be his, they have gone in a different direction. Now Naheem Hines has uh, has those in addition to punt returning duties. So yeah, that uh, McKenzie's role seems to be, if this game is any indication, seems to be dwindling a bit and not having an impact on the offense at all, especially when he's taken off special teams completely. That's Dre Archer to a T right there. Next up is the Vontae Davis Award for the player that did not show up in the second half. And I'm going to go with cornerback Dane Jackson for this one. The Bills... They controlled it for the most part up until the Browns started putting up points. But I think there were quite a few opportunities that Dane Jackson had on contested catch or 50-50 balls that that he could have forced an incompletion to and he just didn't. And that good start to the season that we saw from Dane Jackson where it seemed like he was going to be that full-time starter opposite Tredavious White whenever it was that White would be able to return. I think that's in question a little bit because this is not a new thing. It's not just a one-game thing. Jackson has shown some struggles over the last few games now. And that's why when I pointed out the cornerback group, it just feels so wide open right now. Like, I don't know who is going to be starting for them in the playoffs. Because we have yet to see Tredavious White. We are under the assumption that Tredavious White will, at one point this season, play. The Bills have not put the pressure on by any means. And they have not given any indication when that might be. All they have pointed out was that Tredavious White was not ready just yet. He's been practicing, but he is not at that point. But even if he is in the lineup, I'm not sure who's going to be starting with him. Because Dane Jackson hasn't looked great. And I do like Christian Benford quite a bit, but they showed less of a faith in him with this game because they 
split his snaps with Xavier Xavier Rhodes. And to me, you know, that's not a great indicator of them wanting to utilize him as the uh, the primary cornerback opposite Tredavious White when the time comes. And then you throw in Kair Elam into the mix and maybe Xavier Rhodes. It's just... There's f- maybe five options to play. And what it's going to look like, I just... I don't know. It's your your guess is as good as mine. It's it's completely up in the air. It'll probably it'll probably be come playoff time. Tredavious White with Dane Jackson, but you just can never. You can't tell because of player performance and their actions and everything like that. So, but yeah, long story short, Dane Jackson gets the Vontae Davis Award for the player that didn't show up in the second half. The Matt Barkley Award for the player that uh, popped up for unexpectedly for good reasons. I'm going to go with Boogie Basham, who wound up playing his biggest snap count game of the year, maybe even his career. By my count, out there for 51 out of 78 total snaps for 65%. And that was due in part to A.J. Epinesa having to leave the game due to an ankle injury. Epinesa only had six snaps in this game. And Basham was the guy that they went to rather than Shaq Lawson. So it's kind of this, this seesaw thing because it, for a time it looked like that Shaq Lawson had passed both Epinesa and Basham. He was getting more snaps than both. Then Epinesa, once Russo uh, got injured, became the starting guy and uh, opposite Von Miller. And then it looked like Shaq Lawson was the third guy to that. But once Epinesa went out, Boogie Basham was the guy that took over. So Basham popped with some uh, some solid run defending and and gave them a lot of good snaps. So I'll I'll, I'll give uh, Basham the Matt Barkley award because we haven't seen that from him. It's it's a guy that at some points of the year was only getting barely double digit snaps, and in this game he got fifty one. So, kudos to Boogie Basham for stepping up when the Bills were down to only three defensive ends in this game. The Gotta Watch the Tape Award, made famous by Sean McDermott, proclaiming that he had to watch the tape after Nathan Peterman's uh, blowout loss to the Ravens, in which they inevitably switched to Josh Allen from that point forward. I'm going to give it to Deion Dawkins, because Dawkins... Did not have a good second half against the Vikings. He has struggled throughout his career anytime he's gone up against Miles Garrett. And there are a couple of plays that I caught live where he did not look great. And so I want to see if the film matches up with that initial feeling because Garrett seemed like he was he was getting in there against Deion Dawkins. Just there's something about that matchup that has always given Dawkins trouble. And I mean, Miles Garrett is one of the the best pass rushers in the league. So I guess that would explain part of it. But even still, Dawkins has has uh played a lot better against some good pass rushers out there, but something about the Garrett matchup that has given him problems. And so, got to watch the tape to see if Dawkins actually struggled as much as I think he did. 
And then finally, at long last, the Blaine Gabbard Award for Perseverance. And I am going to give this to the over. We have been talking about how the under has just been dominating all year, but the perseverance of the over going through uh, a move of game destination from Buffalo to Detroit, getting up to as high as 50 and a half right before the game and needing a late score from the Browns to do it. But the over persevered, and we haven't seen many overs this year with the Bills, but the over persevered and was able to uh, actually get one this year. It was fast track. Thought it, maybe it w- wouldn't happen. You know, I, I picked the over ahead of the game. I did pick, if you go back on, uh, I did my Ask Joe B uh, before the game got going. I did 20 questions of it. And someone asked for who wins, you know, podcast style, who wins, who covers, and uh, over-under for the game. And I went with Bills win, Bills cover the 7.5-point spread, and hitting the over of the 50.5-point total barely. And it all happened. So I went 3-for-3 on the week, thankfully. Probably not going to happen again next week. But the over persevered and... I know uh, those that have listened to us throughout the season that that have heard the under just dominating are like, when is the over finally going to get one? And here it is. Happened. Gloriously, I might add. Anyway. All right. So I think that'll do it for this episode. The Bills getting the the win that they need, that they needed to get. And helping them get back on track maybe a little bit. This was a game that they should have won, that they needed to win against a team that they should have beaten. So it's not like one of those games where you can draw these overwhelming conclusions about how the rest of the season is going to go. I think more than anything, it's a check of the box as the one that they they should be able to, to get. And maybe one that helps spur on some uh, better results in specific areas to the game. Like like we talked about the rushing offense, the run defense, all of those different things. And, and specific means of, of how they got to that point. So plenty to chew on. A uh, short track to the next game when they head back to Detroit to take on the Lions. Who won, mind you. So they're on a one-game winning streak. No. What is their record right now? See, this is what happens when it gets late in the night and I I begin to double think what the heck what the heck is going on throughout the league. Uh let's see. The Lions because I'm insane and doing this on the fly. No, they've won their last 3. What am I talking about? They they lost a lot of their games. I thought maybe they had won won a few of their games, but yes, the Lions on a 3-game win streak, mind you. Now four and six on the season. Watch out now. But yeah, the Bills are going to be going up against those that team that's playing with a lot of confidence. So a, a nice little nice little test for them on Thanksgiving. It's twelve thirty game. So we'll see what they do. But yeah, 
the Bills have a a really nice chance here to get to eight and three on the year if they take care of their business against Detroit before this slog of AFC East opponents comes forward. Got the the Patriots on a Thursday night game in New England on December first. And then the Jets at home, the Dolphins at home. It's gonna be a that's gonna be a, a pivotal stretch for how the rest of the season is gonna go. But uh, seems like the Bills woke up at least a little bit against the Browns, and we'll see if they can keep it going moving forward. All right, thank you everyone for listening, uh, and again, thank you for uh, putting up with the fact that there wasn't a, a, a preview episode. I, I appreciate it. The uh, the storm. Uh, we'll put the standings storm one and oh, Joe, oh, and one in terms of the podcast, but, uh, you know, hopefully there won't be too many more six footers <laughs> moving forward. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, the bills are now seven and three next up. They've got the Detroit lions. And that is when we will speak with you next with a preview episode, some point a little bit later this week. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. And we will talk to you next time. See you then.